Hello everyone from the iConnections Global Alts Conference here in Miami at the famous Fountain Blue Hotel. We're taping a special edition of our Salt Talks digital interview series here uh, with my co-host Anthony Scaramucci. Salt Talks for the Uninitiated is a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. What we try to do here on Salt Talks is the same thing we do at our global conference series, which we're excited to embark on uh, our Salt Asia event in Singapore later this year, Salt in Abu Dhabi in about a month, Salt New York in May, and then finally a fantastic digital assets event that we're hosting in Wyoming called the Wyoming Blockchain Symposium that's gonna be in August. Uh, but what we're trying to do here on these Salt Talks is the same thing we do at our Salt conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts one of those subject matters that we're very enthusiastic here at both SkyBridge and SALT is the digital asset ecosystem. And we're very excited today to welcome a four-time technology entrepreneur onto the show who's the founder and CEO of Figment, which is primarily a blockchain infrastructure company focused on staking, but also building uh, other aspects of blockchain infrastructure. And I'm gonna turn it over to Anthony Scaramucci, my co-host, to do the bulk of the interview, but in order to keep Anthony on track, I'm going to sit here and, and babysit a little bit uh, for his conversation with Lorian Gable, who again is the founder and CEO of Figment. Anthony, go ahead. Okay, John, that was very good. Thank and, you. And John, did I winged that, with, that. I hadn't done John that. John did that without a teleprompter, which was even more impressive. It's well done. All right, well done. Okay, you're showing your age, John. Good for you. Okay, so Lorian, thank you for joining us. Good to meet you. You know, okay. I, I bet you don't remember the first time we met. I bet you don't. Restaurant oh, yeah, in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, San Francisco. We that's were at the right. table together. You know how that night ended? I don't remember how it ended, but I, that's the first time I thought I met you. We, we, I, I brought... That, that uh, was it. I think you... I brought Farron. One of my board like members. The name yeah. to not be... Ended up doing... Seeing how many push-ups you could do. Yes, we at did. At the end of the that's night. Correct. At a very yeah. nice San Francisco right. I was training. So that, I was that was training, my first impression. I was training for special I think forces you won. at the time. I did, because I, I was training for special forces at the time. And I had to show that young kid that's right. that think, you people like was, you and me right. still he have like, it. He was 20 years your junior. I think right. you took him. Right. Well, they call that you. old man strength. That's thank you for remembering. It's also known as middle age rage. Okay. So just. Okay, I think you. Will, I think you're a little past come, middle age rage. That will come upon you at some point. Okay. You Wait, think you can senior just, citizen rage is way worse than middle age rage. You think you can outwork the demons, but they'll still be there at the end of that workout. Yeah. There's no question. There's no question. Well, that's what I want to talk about because entrepreneurship is very similar. You either feel it or you don't feel it, and if you feel it, it's a benefit, obviously great beneficiary, but it's also a curse because you're incredibly motivated, incredibly driven. So I want to go to your life, and I want you to take us all the way back. You've said that you've been, uh, you've lived in communes, you've lived all over the place. Uh, parents were in the military. Uh, talk a little bit about your upbringing because I think it's very instructive for some of the young people listening. Yeah, I think I was very, very fortunate to have a, uh, a father who had a very eclectic background, was uh, running away from uh, very strict Jewish parents in, in New York City, first, you know, first generation immigrants and everything, all the expectations that come along with your, your, uh, your son from doing that. And so um, his way of escaping was to uh, join the Air Force. Um, but I don't know, you remember the show MASH? I do. Remember back in the day, there was like, a, it used to be the most popular show final episode may still have been the most watched 125 episode, million people right, right. so he, he was, was like an uh, Alan Alda character yep, 1982 right? I remember very well right so February like, of 83 actually but yep I there remember. you go there you yep. go so um, dating ourselves stop doing that so um, uh, joined the Air Force basically to escape from New York um, was a doctor in the Air Force and then um, when he got out uh, 
had me. We were living in Asia at the point. Uh, ended up remarrying a Canadian. And so um, as I uh, got out of the Air Force and decided that, you know, I was going to check out for a while. And uh, we lived for seven years on a hilltop in rural Canada with no running water or electricity for most of that in the house that he built. Um, and then ended up moving to Toronto, going to school, college, law school in Toronto. And that's where we started our first company. So pretty diverse background, moved around a lot as a kid, which at the time I hated. You know, a new kid on the block, get beat up all the time. But in hindsight, it was like really good independence. Where, you know, teach you to run or fight. When you, when you move around a lot, you do hate it. You hate it Everybody I talk to about it says, well, that taught me resilience. It taught yeah. me how to open up a new door. Yeah. It taught me that things will be okay when I'm making a change or that's an right. adaptation. Is like, that uh, true? Yeah, that, that's absolutely Like at the time, just another school. Oh my God, this is going to be horrible as a quiet kid. Really, really bad. Um, I remember an opera, uh, a story. We just moved to Hawaii. And I had been in a Canadian school for a while, and I didn't know the Pledge of Allegiance. And the first day of class, they're like, oh, the new kid, you're going to get up and say the Pledge of Allegiance. You know, grade four or five like that. I'm like, what the hell is the Pledge of Allegiance? We didn't, we didn't do this. And so I'm like, I look up in pure panic. And at that moment, I like run out of class. And I stop, and I'm like, wait a second, you can't just go back in there. And I'm shaking from fear. And I'm like, look, I don't know the Pledge of Allegiance. So you're gonna have to tell me, but I'll do it. But it was one of those moments where I, the first instinct was just to run, and then like, ah, you can't run. You gotta turn around. No, you but gotta we all have back. that, right? That's the fight or right. flight response. That's the fight or right? flight response. All right. So you're coming back in. You go to law school. You go to college. You get yourself educated, but you're an entrepreneur. Okay. Yeah. And so when do you know that you're an entrepreneur? So I knew at age 11. You knew at age 11. Knew at age 11. Paper out. Had a paper out. Right. I was hustling the papers. And I knew right then and there, you know what? I'm never going to be able to work Don't for anybody. Don't want to work for anyone. That's I have the... to figure out how to do this myself. So, um, like a lot of success, it's a mixture of luck um, and good timing. And uh, so, my first year lawyer, as being a lawyer, kind of looking around, getting. But, but set the scene for me, Lorian. You're, you're in what state? Are you in Canada as a I'm lawyer? I'm in Canada. I've graduated Canada. from law school. Right. I'm a first so year lawyer in so Toronto. So you have the Canadian bar. You pass the Canadian right. bar. You're yeah. practicing law in Toronto. Passion law in Toronto, um, graduated in the middle of a recession. It was a little bit hard to get a job. There was a recession in the early 90s. No one remembers it now, like the tequila bond crisis or one of them like that. So it was a little bit hard to get a job, but finally, finally got a job as a lawyer and um, getting partners dry cleaning, doing all that. Um, and looking around me and being like, God, these partners still working hard. 40 years later, still taking directions, still in the office 60 hours a week. This doesn't seem like the best job in the world. Unfortunately, my younger brother, um, who's been my business partner for 30 years now and through four startups, um, uh, a genius, maybe the smartest person I know, um, but dropping out of high school because he can't stand direction and maybe the first Jewish kid ever where his dad said, okay, you can drop out of your final year of high school, but you gotta <laughs> do something. And my brother's like, there's this thing called the internet. It's gonna be big. I no, I can barely turn on my computer. Um, uh, I think we should start a company. I don't know anything about how to start a company, but I know the tech. So why don't we start an ISP, help people, companies get on the internet. Um, and but can you help me start a company because I don't know how to do that so I left law after eight months and joined and started our first company which is one of the first commercial ISPs in Canada um, actually our original idea um, was that people should sell things on the internet and this is free browser and we went to a couple of the big you know, like Canadian department stores which were department stores back in the day and they're like sell our put our catalog on the internet are you fucking crazy right. and uh, but we need email for our employees can you do that we can do that so and then off, off we go that was the first. Uh, that was the first company. What year? 
1993 started and sold it to a U.S. telecom provider in 98. So four or five years. We were right. kids, you know. So he was still a teenager. I was in my mid-twenties, so didn't know what the hell we were doing. All right, but you, you, you. But here's here's learning lesson, not to interrupt. You saw something. You were bold enough to take the risk. You saw something new that was expanding. We're gonna get into the crypto in a second. That's right. And you said, okay, there's something here. There's a wave. My brother and I are gonna catch this wave with this surfboard ride it into the that's, beach. That's the timing. Right, part. and that's, that's exactly right. what that's, you did. That's exactly And it. so now you made some very good money. God bless you, you're a young guy. You made very good money, but you got the itch. Took a little time off. You, you took a little time off. And right, then... you did all the things that we would do. You know, we have our George Harrison moment, right? We're going to, <laughs> going to meet the Maharishi and all that sort of yeah, stuff. Did actually go and, to the, yes. Right, yeah, and, then, and then you come back, but you go, hey, I gotta go back to work. You gotta so, do something. So what's number two? Start so then we had two. a data center company back when um, data centers and people, again, growth of e-commerce, that era. And so companies, there wasn't cloud hosting at that time. So if you wanted to have a website and sell stuff, you needed to put it the servers in a data center somewhere. So we took old bank mainframe data centers, refurbished them up to internet standards. There were a couple of big companies in the US at that time. Exodus was a big one. I remember Exodus. Um, that's right. Uh, and you know that was during the bandwidth WorldCom, all those days yeah, when sure, people were building out basically yeah. the basic infrastructure of the internet. Remember all that stuff. Okay, so, so, you, so you create that company. How many years are you in that company? Two years and uh, raising our B or C round right in the middle of 2001, the, uh, which made this crash in uh, the last couple of years look like child's play. So yeah, for those who remember 2001, big tech crash. Um, and yeah. at that time we had a choice to raise money on pretty bad terms well, or sell our company to AT&T Canada yeah. and we did that. Let's interject for the youngins yeah. though. When you talk about <laughs> a big tech crash, the NASDAQ went down 78%. 78% from the high to the low during that period of time. And people were like, what's going on? And then there was a generation of people that swore off technology. They said, That's well, right. I got very badly burned. I watched my Amazon stock go from 116 to eight. I'm done with technology. And those people, unfortunately, missed the greatest Tech run after, after in That's US right. economic history. So very big learning lessons here. Uh, you could be on the right cycle, you've been on the right trend, uh, but you have to ride through the storms. Again, we're going to get the crypto later. Yeah, but let's that, keep talking. So now, so now you sell that company, right? Sell that company, okay. and then decide like I got to get out of Canada, move to New York, um, and uh, one of my ISP co-founder friends had started a cloud security company out of London, and needed someone to run the U.S. And I'm like, I'm in New York, I'm not doing anything, getting into trouble. I should probably go into an office, um, and uh, end up being there for five or six years. A company called Meshes Labs, uh, and we end up selling to Symantec in 2008. Okay, that was the third one. Before the crash in 2008, or during the middle of it? No, it was closing during the middle of it, which middle, is another yeah, so. cr another crazy story about whether it's actually going to close or not. It was an all cash deal, um, and you know, 24 hours of people waiting, and then it ended up closing. But it was right in the middle of the crash. Okay, so that's startup number three. But I want to ask you this question because you have good historical perspective and you've lived through certain things. How do you handle these crashes? How do you handle these boom bust cycles? What's your advice to me? So it's pretty funny, you know, like we have, I don't know how many of our, but we have a good number of people at the company who didn't live through 2008, much less 2001, or one of the debt crises in the 90s. And it's, I still, like 2008 for me, I don't know about you, feels like yesterday. Like the fear and the panic and oh, well, the, yeah, sure, right? Like it doesn't feel like 2008. It's a long time ago. So I'm going to tell you something that you'll enjoy. I, 1998. I got the doors blown off of me. So just to set the scene, the uh, uh, Thailand, yeah, the bot crisis. Yep. Then you remember the uh, yep. sovereign debt crisis That's in right. Russia. 
who Boris Yeltsin said they're not going to pay back the sovereign debt. I watched my fund that I started in 1996 go down 35% unlevered. It was unlevered, it went down 35%. I said, okay, I'm going to go out of business. And uh, it really taught me a lesson about patience and fortitude and staying in there. So by 1998 going to 2008, when that hit, which was worse than 1998, in some ways I was more fortified. Right. Do you feel you know, there's a straight line there, I think, from there to digital assets. And it was in the late 90s and long-term capital, which wasn't a government bailout, but it was a government-facilitated bailout, right? Exactly. And right. I think that's where you started to see there's the Mexican bond crisis, which was a bailout, 95, 94, 95. That's right. So I think you get a direct line, actually, from there to 2008 and then Bitcoin. That's really a reaction to the government bank bankouts. Right. So, and I think you can take that line, draw it straight through all the populist stuff going on now. Right. So so Satoshi basically makes a decision, wow, this is, uh, we got to we got drunk driving. Central banks are drunk driving. Sovereign governments are drunk driving with their sovereign debt. Too big to we fail. Got, we, got to, we got to take the money away from the government, and we got to put it in a decentralized format so that people can trust it, because we really can't trust the money anymore. Right. And oh, by the way, since they're borrowing so much money, they're going to have to monetize their debt through inflation. So if you earn a dollar today, you're going to have 90 cents of purchasing power in two years. Last 10 years. I, 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 I looked it up more? on the way here. Last 10 years, inflation over 30 percent yeah okay so, so you just held a dollar in the last right. 10 years not that long right 30 percent okay but Lauren the thing about that though that's psychologically so damaging if I own the asset and the assets worth a dollar and it goes up 30 percent I feel richer because I'm nominally richer even though I'm not richer from real economic terms does right. that make sense yeah it makes sense okay so that's why people are able to live with and able to tolerate it I've got except for the guy driving the pickup truck well, that's the problem. And Fixing these, things every day. Yep. Who's 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 got their doesn't have that asset. Their time and energy right. is their money. That's right. And so, wait a minute. You're giving me a dollar for all the energy I just expended, but now that dollar is not worth what you just gave me. It's really not fair to me. It's really not fair to my family. To form they a theft. And they become very angry. Right. Form and a they theft. and they resort to populist pop politicians, right. and they're looking for politicians that represent their anger. That's right. And here we are. We've got AOC, Donald Trump. Bernie Sanders uh, and uh, my good friend Elizabeth Warren. And your good friend Elizabeth. Okay, so let's go to let's go to startup number four. Figment. Um, yeah. So uh, the last one, I think, um, which is right, well, you're, on, you're on tape saying it's the last one, so you have to so promise I'll say it. me. Yeah. When you're starting startup number five, you got to come back this on is, our podcast because this is, this is, you can't get out of it. I you know, you're like the Michael Corleone of uh, they keep, they startups keep drawing, and entrepreneurship. They keep drawing, they keep drawing you back in. Okay, so go ahead, Figment. So Tell us what Figment is. 27, 2018. And again, congratulations on Figment, brother. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, 27, 2018. My brother's like, hey, there's this blockchain crypto thing. It's been around for a few years. Not one of the first in in Bitcoin, anything like that. So relatively late to the space, considering probably when you got into it. Um, well, I got in in October, November of 2020. So you're okay. you're in before me. A little bit, you know. But um, right. as you had pointed out, there are people who were in it 2011 and had Bitcoin at you know 10 cents. That, that wasn't me. Um, but uh, I basically said, hey, you know, I'm interested in this cryptography aspects of decentralized computing networks. Um, we have a second co-founder, Andrew, who was like interested in the privacy and the lack of privacy on the internet and what the internet had become. And I sort of had this lingering feeling like we need an alternative to the large banks, which um, I think to some extent are, you know, I don't know the definition of a criminal organization, but if you look at the fines that the large banks have paid over the last 10 or 20 years, um, too big to fail, 
can't, you know. 38 billion for J.P. Morgan. I know that yeah. the, I know that Elizabeth Warren saying that the uh, money laundering and all the theft and trafficking yeah, is coming off and of not, Bitcoin. And not 38 billion for like failing to like product, you know, dot an I across a T on some regulation. Like Mexican drug cartels, mortgage fraud, Foreign Corrupt Practices the, the Act, the like not scale. little things. No, there's a no, lot if of, you and I did that individually, we wouldn't be sitting here. No, I, I understand. Right. Look, there's a lot of stuff that goes on. I'm not blaming, you know, things happen, okay? I'm a, obviously a customer of a lot yep. of these big banks, and so I'm not here to throw stones. I'm just trying to point out why throw stones at crypto when we know that the system itself is flawed. Okay, so, so, tell us so what our thought was basically means. like my, my personal feeling is that I'm not I'm not an anarchist like you. I serve these institutional clients. They're our base. We don't serve consumers um, for our staking services. Uh, so I'm not an anarchist, but I do believe there should be an alternative. Like if you want to send to someone, if you want to send some money to someone in Mexico and you don't like, why do you need a big bank who charged you a bunch of money to do that? Shouldn't you have to do that directly? And shouldn't you have a choice? Like. Maybe Elizabeth Warren's right. Maybe there's no use for crypto. I don't know. Maybe at the end of the day there won't be. But why not give people the choice? Like, why should there be a monopoly on one value? Like, where's the written the government right, has well, a monopoly? Let me, of a, let me, and let why do you need intermediaries? Let me in this play Elizabeth. Let me play Elizabeth Warren, my favorite person, right. because I like control. Who's not done a good job of regulating these entities? Well, I want to point out. Well, exactly. But she's now bought and paid for by the American Banking Association. But I like control. And so what I do want is a central bank digital currency that will give me control. It'll give me social scoring for a population and I'll be able to dictate whether you're a good actor or a bad actor. So control is good. Lack of control, decentralization, liber libertarianism, the idea of personal freedom, very bad. I don't like that. Why would I like that? I'm smarter than you. Yes. I, I should take money from your pocket and put it in my pocket because I know better how to deploy it than you do. It's top down. So why would I like that? That's right. It's about right. control and it's top down. And unfortunately in American politics you need to find a you need to find the bad person, right? You gotta have someone you can set yourself up to in contrast. Is that a scapegoat? I mean you gotta have scapegoat. she's got an army of people that she's gonna hire to protect uh, the proletariat against crypto. In the meantime how, how, how many people on her staff do you think you have rotated between the organizations that they supposedly regulate? Well, so I don't know the exact number, but we do know that that is happening now. There's a there's a revolving door, big pharma into the FDA, right. big food in and out of the FDA, so, uh, banks so going in and out of the SEC, in and give, out of the staff. Why not give someone an alternative? We That's all that. I'm saying. Okay. People want to try a different method right, so how for do transferring I use, value. How do I use Figma? All right, so um, you're probably familiar with Ethereum. Um, Ethereum has made the transition last year into something called proof, proof of stake. There's basically two operating systems for blockchains. One's proof of work, which Bitcoin runs on and always should. It works. This isn't a criticism of that. But you've heard about Bitcoin mining, where people are running big data centers that consume a lot of electricity and computing power. So that's one method of securing and running a blockchain in a decentralized way. Um, Ethereum last year made a transition to proof of stake, which is basically the same way of doing it with less computing power and less, um, and less electricity being used. So it's more efficient um, and, in theory, more scalable. And so if you have 32E, um, give you and me a month, 50-50, we could probably figure out how to run our own Ethereum node. So you take 32 ETH, uh, you spin up a node, and then it's like having a credit card and being able to process uh, credit card transactions 
as part of the network and then taking some of those fees. So basically, if you have 32 ETH or you hold Solana, you can basically run and participate in the protocol in a decentralized way. So as a token holder, you're actually an owner. You can think of it as that as the protocol. So um, individuals can do that on their own. Many do. There's thousands of people who run their own nodes. But if you're an institution and you have a couple hundred million or a billion dollars worth of Ethereum and a fiduciary, you don't want to run that infrastructure on your own. It's hard to scale complicated um, there are some small risks associated with it so you would have someone like us run those computers on your behalf and it's okay. called staking so so, so I, co I come in with my several hundred million dollars worth of ethereum right. and i say uh morian i want you to run the staking program for me that's right and you'll do the staking you'll handle all those transactions you'll handle all the we'll run the computers and you don't give us just just to be clear we're not a counterparty you still hold custody however you hold you basically elect our computers to run on your behalf so you get a small piece of the I tokenomics, way, yeah. so and it's the like rest a, of the tokenomics come back. That's right. So we started like 10% for our, for um, as a starting point, and then our largest clients will be down to one or two percentage points of their rewards. Okay, but correct me if I'm wrong. Because of your efficiency and your scalability, if I give you the money, even though you're taking 10%, you're making the pie bigger for both of us, are you not? That's right. Because you're able to grab right. into you're, more. You're basically as how you're being compensated right. for locking up your Ethereum for a short period of time and running these computers is that when someone uses Ethereum, they pay a gas fee, you take a little percentage of that, and then we take a percentage of that. Right, but because of your scale, that's right. you're able to, get, you're able to make yeah. me more money. That's so right. it's, it's I think we're the largest. We're probably close to 6% of ETH block production right now, and so we have a lot of, a lot of scale, so and we do me, that across 30 other protocols. Let me put it in basic terms. And just, so if, I, if I can make a dollar on my own, if I give it to Figment, uh, I might be able to make a dollar ten, and Fig Figment makes eleven cents, right? We take. I wish. Yeah, we take we a percentage not. of that ten. Percentage of that ten. Okay. Of that 10. But, but it's more than I would that, have made. That's right. That's but it's exactly. More than I would have made on we my own. We have the scale. Yeah, we have the okay. operating efficiency and all the tools. All and right. All so, that what's stuff. the end game here? So look. Um, you know, I think as a founder, focusing on excess is generally a bad idea. You know, I think if you build a, a good business that makes money over the long term, the excess will take care of itself. Um, but the sort of the long thesis is like, look, if you were a, a large Bitcoin miner any time in the last 10 years, um, you had some large percentage of Bitcoin hash rate, you either are or were or you were or are a public company. And so my sort of high level thesis is that we want to um, have a significant amount of the block production on Ethereum and Solana and these other protocols. And if we do that effectively for our clients, um, we do that efficiently, the business will take care of itself. Okay, I'm a, I'm a Bitcoin skeptic. Okay. I don't like Bitcoin, I don't understand it. Uh, I've been told by people like John Stark and Elizabeth Warren that it's financial blather. I'm actually speaking at the Duke University conference uh, this week. They all hate Bitcoin there, they're all hate, hate Bitcoin. So. Enlighten me. What am I missing? Why, why, why should I not hate Bitcoin? So, and by the way, I don't hate Bitcoin. I'm playing devil's advocate. I got it. I'm I got it. I got it. I'm up so, in the in Bitcoin. I got it. So, um, you know, I think basically where Bitcoin is settled out right now, until um, until people start doing more transactions on the network, is essentially a form of digital gold and a store of asset and a store of value that may or may not be correlated with other financial assets. So, you know, so it actually doesn't. Like, it doesn't matter if you hate Bitcoin. Like, great, you hate Bitcoin. No one's forcing you to buy Bitcoin, right? Like, you know, you're, you're forced to use the Fed system at the end of the day. No one's forcing you to buy Bitcoin. So if you don't like it, it doesn't matter. And it's like, don't, like it, don't buy it. Don't buy it. But then why Basically. are other people buying it? Because I hate it, and I don't think other people should buy it. I think Bitcoin should trade to zero. So why isn't Bitcoin trading to zero? And why are other people buying it? You know, it's like telling people that um, I, you shouldn't be able to buy art because it has no value. 
can't eat it, can't sleep in it, what am I going to do with art? Or a whole host of other things that we consume that don't appear to have like tangible value. So, um, you know, Generation Z, you know, if they think like, look, take something at the ridiculous end of, of crypto assets like Dogecoin, fucking meme coin, right? It's like basically a copy of Bitcoin, but it's a meme. But you know what? The kids don't care. Like for them, the memes have value. I mean, that's the definition of a meme is it replicates and grows if it's a successful meme. So we may think, well, that's ultimately ridiculous. But if they want to hold value and they find value in that, that's, I mean, that's the human thing. I mean, what's the value of the, a paper dollar? I guess I could pay my taxes with it. But backed by what? I can't walk up to the Fed and get a burger for it, right? Like it's just a piece of paper. It's all... It's all belief. It's a commonly held belief, right? right. And so Bitcoin's the same thing. So it's, it's a commonly held belief so that has value. And more importantly, it's got a limited supply. And humans love limited supply, right? It's in our basic nature. Right. So if something has a limited supply, we, we want, want to collect more. it, we want to hold it. Like real estate in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, like for example. Like real estate in Jackson Hole. Okay, so, very so, so John, you're sitting here. Go ahead. You have, must have some questions. Yeah, I have a couple questions. You know, staking, you guys are one of the leading staking providers for the Ethereum network in particular. You see different staking providers, there's different yields, or it's not yield technically, but different spreads on, on what you can rate, staking like reward bugs. rates. Right. Um, what makes one staking provider be able to provide better rewards than another? What's your competitive advantage relative to other staking providers? Right. So um, by definition, these are decentralized protocols. So there's, it's not a winner-take-all market by definition. In other words, it's not like a social network or a Pareto law distribution necessarily. Um, so you need to have like, if, if we were the, if we, if we were like 30 or 40% of block protection on Ethereum wouldn't be decentralized, you wouldn't want to use a decentralized protocol. So there's a natural cap on how it can be. And so there are a whole bunch of providers that will serve um, their own holdings. They want to do it themselves or they have a different, they have a retail customer segment. Um, we've just chosen to serve institutions. So we've gotten very good at compliance, which is obviously a large issue. Um, security, reporting, which is very important and more difficult to do than you would think. Um, customer service, um, and essentially um, at scale, these protocols, you need to have geographic diversity in where your infrastructure lies. Um, you don't want to be on just like Amazon East in New York for various reasons. So really it comes down to an institutional grade offering um, that can serve holders who have huge amounts of ETH or Solana or any of the other protocols. So it's really a market segmentation for us. Um, and I think, as I said, once you have scale at these protocols, you can be the low cost provider um, and you basically know and can support the most pro protocols. There's more than two blockchains. There's 30 or 40 that have, have usage right now. And so really, um, if you're an institution and a fiduciary, you don't want to go with someone who has a couple servers in their, in their garage, in their basement, basically. This is, this is more of a meta question for you around decentralized computing. You talked about how your brother and your other co-founder have these different beliefs around decentralized computing. Um, we had a meeting yesterday with one of the executives from Filecoin talking about how they are creating sort of the Airbnb for data centers and data storage. Do you believe that a decentralized internet is a inevitable reality that we'll be able to create you know, through blockchain and other forms of technology you know, rather than, as you said, monopolizing all the computing power in AWS data centers and, and Microsoft data centers, so, do you think we'll create a decentralized framework? So, I mean, that was, so, because I'm old enough to have seen what the original internet was like pre-browser, the original vision of the internet, um, maybe overly idealistic at the time, was that you basically enable peer-to-peer -peer communication without a newspaper, without a book publisher, 
without a fax, without a telecom provider, essentially that you would be able to enable peer, and that would have a whole bunch of benefits. And so that was kind of the original vision of the internet in the early 90s, basically. Um, and then what happened, especially in the mid to late 2000s, is you basically had a huge centralization. So you have these massive data monopolies like Google, who make a huge amount of money off your data, don't really know how. Um, and you basically now have three or four large entities, Facebook, et cetera, who essentially control large parts of the internet, right? Which is, which has a whole bunch of negative externalities. We've seen it with social media. We've seen it with, you know, they have massive, massive profits of which you don't get any benefit from your data. So I think that like, if we want to go back almost to why the original internet existed, you need to have a decentralized option. And this is basically what crypto does. So again, I'm not an anarchist. I serve institutions, but I think we need to have an alternative that can return us back. Because we're seeing a whole bunch of negative externalities from these large, a few large companies controlling it. And I'm kind of like a bottom-up guy. Like, look, you gotta have a hierarchy at some point, um, but things get too big, all power corrupts, a little bit of power corrupts, a little bit less. And so if there's just a relief or a pressure valve from this, what's happening, whether it's the largest banks or these huge data monopolies, I think that's a good thing for us all. And these tech titans, as they get big, they have to play ball with the U.S. government. And so they, it brings back the censorship You get element. regulatory capture. Inevitably, you get regulatory. That's always how it works. And so the, the greatness of the American system is that you will allow new technologies, which are potentially disruptive, to be in an experiment, to run in sandboxes. Um, and that's really the health of the system. Like, you just can't have these sclerotic institutions. You see what happens um, that have total control. It's just bad for the system, and it's bad for everyone. So I want to go to Ethereum for a second, and you might not have a view on this, but there's obviously a ideological battle right now between those that, that think that Ethereum as the decentralized layer of the internet is inevitably going to dominate the landscape, and there's going to be layer twos that serve specific purposes uh, that all feed into one settlement layer, which is the Ethereum layer one. There's others, the Avalanches, the Solanas yep. of the world, that believe that the layer one should you know, have fast computing power and should be uh, the most modern protocols and, and everything should feed through that and maybe we'll have a multi-chain world. Do you have a view given your yeah, prominence it, it, in the Ethereum it's, it's ecosystem? It's a great question. Um, it's, it's a great question. And we sort of, even when we were starting the company, you know, is there going to be, you know, you had to ask yourself, is there going to just be Bitcoin at the end of the day? You know, there are Bitcoin maximalists who say everything else is this just a store of value. Yeah, everything lightning else is network and things everything, that are trying yeah, to tackle yeah, the payments. Th piece. There shouldn't be anything else but Bitcoin. And then there are people who are like, okay, well, yeah, Bitcoin for a store of value. Um, digital gold, and then you have Ethereum as a decentralized com computing network, um, and then everything else shouldn't exist. So we had to kind of answer that question from a business strategy perspective, and I think my view at this point is there's not going to be one or two blockchains. Um, I don't know that there needs to be 10,000, and so somewhere in between there lies the truth and probably 50 blockchains that have some use case over time, maybe 25 is probably how it'll end up. I don't think you need thousands of individual blockchains and tokens, but you're going to have use cases that neither Bitcoin nor Ethereum will be suitable for. Last question I have for you is about Wyoming. You know, we've, we talked before the show. Uh, I love the state of Wyoming. I love Jackson Hole. I love that area. I love it not just because of its natural beauty, but the state uh, embodies sort of the American spirit of 
freedom of ideas, creating regulatory guardrails that foster innovation while also promoting responsible behavior. I think the state of Wyoming has created very strong digital asset regulatory frameworks to the extent that we've decided to do a digital assets event in Jackson in partnership with the state government, in partnership with uh, the federal regulators and, and federal members of Congress from the state, which we're, which we're very year, excited. Right? We're doing in August. That's this great. is definitely a plug for that, yep. first of all, great. in the context of my question. You live in that area. I do. Why did you choose to settle in that area? Uh, and, and what have you observed about what Wyoming has done right that maybe could serve as a template for what so, on the federal level we could do it's regulatory? Just, uh, as I said, it's, in a, it's an amazing state. It's big and there's 800,000 people in the whole state. Was there more cows than people? Uh, more cows than people. I mean, that's how many, and that's the Upper East Side. That's like Santa Monica, right? right. Or the Upper East Side, New York. So one, it's a big, empty state. Um, Full of national parks, you know, Grand Teton National Park, Yellowstone, of course, um, Targhee National Forest. So just like the natural, it's like extremely underrated um, as a place to visit either in winter or summer. So it's just like naturally beautiful. Um, you're right, they've taken a great approach to regulation on crypto. They've been in the lead of that. That's not why I moved there originally. i just been in New York City for 15 years, um, had a son, wanted to have a change of pace and thought it would be a better environment to, to raise a kid who gets outdoors once in a while. Um, so that, that's, that's why I love this state. Um, and then actually in some ways COVID was fantastic because um, it was pretty quiet socially, but a lot of young people moved there from LA and New York and ended up staying and are raising families. So it really is, um, you know, like, like any place that has a limited amount, even though it's kind of empty, there's a lot of national parks and so it's difficult to find land. You have you know, local housing issues and all that stuff. Um, but the, you know, the, the, the greater area, whether it includes Idaho, et cetera, is beautiful. It's a marvelous place to live. Um, it's small town America, great public schools. It just, you know, I'm, um, I'm, a, I'm a home, I've been converted. We're gonna package so, up yeah. this segment and send it to our friends yeah, in I Wyoming. Yeah, I really should do their, I should do their, their tourism yeah, brochure. Infomercials. So but you fan. didn't move there because of the crypto regulation. I did not, no, I moved before. But before. They, right. they've been very proactive. They have a stable coin commission. They're looking into, you know, launching a stable coin. Cynthia Lomas uh, has done uh, great Cynthia work Lomas there. has been very That's supportive. Right. The governor, Mark Gordon, uh, right. has been very supportive. State representative has been very supportive. And again, they've created an environment where there are guardrails in place, but uh, there is an environment sort of similar to the way you've seen uh, internationally in places like the UAE or Singapore, where, yeah, there are rules and, right. and there are regulations, it is, it is a but very they're, well they're trying to promote state. innovation. That's right. It is a very well-governed state. You like crypto now? I do sort of like crypto now, you know? Right. I, I came That's at crypto, good. I was probably like a little later. I was mad at me when we went into crypto. You told you to not to do I it. wouldn't say I was mad when we went into crypto, but I had some healthy skepticism of the use cases. People talk about... Yeah. People talk about the different use cases for crypto, you know, in terms of medical records and all, all this stuff. And I, I don't I don't necessarily see that playing out. But as financial infrastructure, which is sort of its primary use case, I, I started to crystallize more in my mind why a decentralized you own system any, you makes own sense. Any NFTs? I do own NFTs. No, he's big on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, you go. there you go. I got him. I thought got the first way. Penguins? What do you got? I, I do have a pudgy <laughs> yeah, penguin. Crypto dick butts. Okay. Right, uh, talk about the meme. The meme is the message. You know, it's, right. it's sort of like the cringier the meme, the more successful the NFT is. Uh, and pudgy penguins is, is the one that's capitalizing most on that now. But I really got into NFTs because I, I wanted to just dive deeper into the culture. It's as much of a technology revolution as it is a cultural revolution. You talk about the young people moving to Jackson Hole and, and driving our society forward. You know, just young people have embraced crypto, and I think it's inevitable it'll become a big part of our 
society as a result of the younger generation being so enthusiastic about it. Here's to that. And it's fun. Yeah. It's not boring. No, it's definitely not boring. Well, you are a terrific guest, and you're a brilliant entrepreneur, and John and I wish you amazing success on Likewise. Figment, and, uh, and I hope you'll come to Jackson and spend some time with us. My neighbors back, in your backyard, so I hope you'll come, come and see us. Absolutely. I'm glad and, to be on the journey. Uh, we really with you. appreciate you uh, yeah, joining absolutely. Salt Talk to us today. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Lorian Gable, the founder and CEO of Figment. Just a reminder you can watch all of our Salt Talks free and on demand on our YouTube channel and on our website, which is salt.org. He's doing this without a teleprompter. It's very impressive. You can follow us on social media at Salt Conference uh, on Twitter Good or higher. X, I should say, is where we're most active. And you can also follow Anthony Scaramucci, who it's election season, so you'll get a combination of crypto commentary and Trump bashing. And so never it, it's, boring. A, it's a yeah. fun ride following Which Anthony on Twitter as well. Supporting the institutions of the democracy and a decentralized state as opposed to a tyrant. But there that's fine. Let's get go. that in. There you 100%. go. There we go. Uh, but right. on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, thank you for tuning in to today's SALT Talk, and we will see you here soon. Thank you.